In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a great episode lined up for you. We will start off by talking about uh, uh, infrastructure and specifically the kind of internal Democrat uh, battle uh, to get both the partisan and bipartisan infrastructure bills passed. And then we'll talk about a Biden's vaccine mandate. And we'll end the show by discussing a, you know, a nice lighthearted topic Texas's unconstitutional abortion ban. Um, so it's a good week to be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, uh, you, you missed a few things. Um, yeah. You know, when you left, we were still in Afghanistan and, and we're not there anymore. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know. That. I literally, so I was without, for those who don't know, I was on vacation and I was in Alaska. So I was almost entirely without internet for the whole time. So I literally was disconnected from the whole outside world. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. Great, good deal. <laughs> Officially, completely out. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was really nice to have Paul on uh, last week. I think he did a really good job. Um, but it is really awesome to have you back, brother. Yeah, it feels really good to be back. Nice yeah. to see your beautiful face. <laughs> and uh, thank you. Uh, and another reason why it's fun to have you back is because it's always awkward when I do the COVID numbers, but I love it when you do the COVID numbers. <laughs> so uh, let's let's hear them COVID numbers. All righty. So worldwide at this point, we're up to 22.8 million cases, which is up from 22.4 million cases last week. So that's about 4 million new cases in a week or about 600,000 new cases a day, which is, um, you know, lower than we had in like recent weeks and like the peak during the middle of August. Um, but it's still much higher than it was uh, this time last year, which is crazy because now we have a fucking vaccine. Yeah. Um, at this point, we've hit 4.68 million deaths, which is up from 4.62 million deaths last week. Um, so that's about 60,000 new deaths this week or about 9,000 deaths a day. Again, pretty similar to where we were this time last year. Um, and so far in the world, 76 doses of vaccine have been administered per 100 people. So, like, continuing that kind of very steady march uh, of, of increasing worldwide vaccination numbers. In the U.S., on the other hand, <laughs> um, at this point we've hit 42.6 million cases, which is up from 41.6 million last week. So 1 million new cases in, in a week, or about 140,000 cases per day. Um, similar to the rest of the world, the decline since the peak in August, but pretty much where we were a year ago. Uh, we've hit 686,000 deaths which is up from 676,000 last week. So that's about 10,000 new deaths in a week or about 1,400 deaths per day. Um, one statistic I saw recently was that at this point, one in 500 Americans who were alive at the start of the pandemic are now dead. Ouch. And Ouch. Yeah, and that's, that's on the back of, you know, really like just trickling vaccine numbers. So 54% 
of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated. 63% has one dose. And that puts us about 30% of the population away from anything looking like herd immunity. So it's it's almost as if uh, just relying on people to see through misinformation wasn't working. Yeah, it's uh, weird, weird how that happens. And like, yeah, it's almost as if as, uh, you know, this disease continues, it becomes more contagious as many people hypothesized early on. And it's almost as if uh, uh, even though some part of the population is vaccinated, like those who are unvaccinated are still at extreme risk. It's, it's, it's all pretty freaking obvious and it's really frustrating that we can't seem to get beyond it. Yeah. Like recently I, I got into a little bit of a Facebook back and forth Actually, it wasn't even much of a back and forth. Like I, I had made a post about how the the question about vaccine mandates or even the soft mandate that Biden has done, and I know we'll talk about this more later, but um, the question is not that complicated because yeah. it's a question of are we affecting other people? All right, is is your decision to get or to not get vaccinated does that have a physical impact on others? And the, and the answer of course is yes. And so yeah. there was a, like there was this one guy that I am friends with on Facebook that pointed out like, well, wait, but what about, uh, what about other, what about the fact that it doesn't affect other people? It only affects people that are unvaccinated. And then like, you know, I, I laid out variants. I laid out people with potential allergies. I laid out, uh, yeah. children, the fact that yeah, there's children, children, fucking children, the people that we're trying to like keep alive, you know, the people everybody should care about. Yeah. I, I laid out, I also, and also I laid out the fact that the vaccine, as we know, is not 100% effective and there are breakout cases. Now, mm-hmm. when it comes to breakout cases, they rarely result in hospitalization or death, but they still happen and they can, they can result in that. So yeah. you could still be impacting somebody who made the choice to get a vaccine. And it seems like this guy yeah. had never heard that argument before. So we need to, we yeah. need to keep putting that out there. We need to keep making that argument. Totally. Also like, uh, I think a huge part of that argument, and we'll, I guess we'll get into this more during the vaccine mandate conversation is like, is also like, it's about protecting you guys too. You yeah. know, like it's about protecting the unvaccinated too. Like, it's not yeah. like all of you got together and decided that you were going to, all choose to you know be uh to like be at higher risk right like like you made the choice to not get the vaccine which is a higher risk choice but yeah. you didn't make the choice altogether that you would compound the risk of everyone else who is not getting the vaccine right like yeah. that's the it's a tragedy of the commons problem if five percent of people choose not to get the vaccine it makes no fucking difference but the more people choose not to get the vaccine the more of a difference it makes. And no one person is responsible. Everybody has to take a portion of that responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And you um, can't collectively decide out of that. Yeah. Anyway, we will uh, we will be getting into that more <laughs> later. Uh, for now, let's talk about some of the internal politics of the Democratic Party right now with regard to this uh, bipartisan infrastructure deal and this partisan infrastructure deal. Yeah. Yeah. So as a reminder, you know, right now, um, through Congress, uh, we we're kind of in this interesting position. So there's this bipartisan infrastructure deal 
focused a lot on like core infrastructure projects like roads, bridges, uh, broadband internet, mass transit. Um, it's been negotiated, uh, you know, by both Democrats and Republicans. Um, it's, you know, about a trillion, $1.2 trillion about. Um, and that is like, you know, progressing well. It's like in a pretty baked format at this point. But at the same time, the progressives, and and I'm going to go ahead and include Biden under that title for the purposes of this summary. Uh, <laughs> Never thought um, I'd hear that. <laughs> no, I know, yeah. The people that are pushing for the more progressive budget reconciliation bill, which is aimed at passing with just Democratic votes, no Republicans required, um, are trying to basically force um, more moderate Democrats to get on board by... Uh, threatening not to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill unless we also pass the the budget reconciliation bill so that's kind of a summary of like this kind of interesting internal uh strategy that's going on within the democratic party right now to get both bills passed to execute on uh biden's build back better agenda yeah absolutely and this has led to a Pretty interesting standoff between uh, the most progressive member of Congress, Bernie Sanders, and um, and the most corrupt Democrat, I mean conservative Democrat, uh, Joe Manchin. <laughs> so before we get into it, let, let's go ahead and very briefly go over what is in each of these bills. Because I think yeah. it is important to note that both of these bills, you know, despite some of the criticisms that I have of the of the bipartisan bill that we have voiced previously on this show, both of these bills do make a significant investment, and both mm -hmm. of these bills are pretty good bills. Um, yeah. So the one point two trillion dollar bipartisan bill, which is actually just um, five hundred and fifty billion dollars of new spending, the the rest of the figure comes from just uh, normally allocated funding for. Um, highways and other infrastructure projects. So it's it's um, 550 additional billion dollars um, altogether. Pretty, that's not that big because it's also it's really over not. multiple years, right? It's over like 10 years or something. Yeah, it's really not that big, and it's definitely it's not as much as like you know we, we've we've read we've read some studies in the past that have talked about um, how if we really wanted to rebuild our infrastructure completely to like get a you know get a grade of a plus um we yeah, need get to up from c yeah <laughs> we, we'd need to put closer to like four trillion six trillion dollars into it which by yeah. the way joe manchin is previously like he was previously in favor of a four trillion dollar uh, infrastructure plan but of course you know he went ahead and flipped and is pretending that it's because of a principle or whatever. And he's pretending that he didn't flip, but anyways, let's talk about what's in it. All right. Yeah. So it's uh, $110 billion for roads and bridges, $66 billion for railroads, $65 billion for the power grid, $65 billion for broadband. That, that right there is really important. Um, expanding yeah. broadband in rural areas. That's very important because broadband in rural areas Speaking from somebody who has lived in rural areas <laughs> most of his life is dog shit. Um, $55 billion for water infrastructure, um, $47 billion for cybersecurity and climate change, uh, $39 billion for public transit, uh, $25 billion for airports, 
$21 billion for environment, $17 billion for, um, for ports. Uh, so like, you know, uh, Coast Guard. Like seaports. You know, harbors, yeah. like seaports, yeah. Um, $11 billion for safety, uh, $8 billion for uh, Western water infrastructure, um, $7.5 billion for electric vehicle charging stations. That's awesome. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, $7.5 billion for electric school buses. So all of those are great. Like all of yeah. those are great things. And And I think that we should take a minute and acknowledge the fact that it is kind of insane and kind mm-hmm. of awesome that 17 Republicans in the Senate voted for this. Yeah. Like with like with like <laughs> big dollar figures assigned to like environmental stuff and climate change and electric cars and stuff like that. Like Yeah. I mean, it's like like a tenth, but still. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it it is important to note like of course this doesn't go nearly far enough and they had to make it a worse bill yeah. in order to get those votes, but mm-hmm. I mean you know that it is really impressive. It is really impressive. And you know that Joe Biden was talking to people behind the scenes. Like, and this is one of those yeah. rare instances in which I think he actually, like in which I would actually give him credit for, for, for that particular thing. Um, mm. Now we have talked about in the past, how some of the methods that they're using for paying for some of these infrastructures are kind of dirty. Like, um, like, uh, like a gas tax. Well, like a gas tax. Uh, there's also uh, asset recycling. Um, mm. Uh, selling away public assets to private entities, which, you know, as we talked about earlier, is actually the reason why parking costs so fucking much in Chicago. So it's yeah. never really the best idea. But overall, I'd say definitely more good than bad at this point. Like, I was a little dismissive before I saw these uh, these final numbers, but more good than bad. Yeah. If this was all that was on the table, it would be a good bill to pass. Um, however, we also have this $3.5 trillion Democratic proposal, which this is the one that they're planning on doing through budget reconciliation. So what's in this bill is um, $135 billion for the Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, uh, $332 billion for the Banking Committee. So that's like investments in public housing, uh, housing trust funds, home affordability, stuff like that. Um, $198 billion for the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, so that that's for developing clean energy. Um, $65 billion for the Environment and Public Works Committee. Um, $1.8 trillion for the Finance, co- for the, uh, finance Committee, which um, this is specifically about uh, uh, working families, the elderly, the environment. It would actually also provide a tax cut for Americans making less than $400,000 a year. It would lower the price of prescription drugs, and um, you know it would it would ensure it would it would raise taxes on on the rich. Um, uh, Seven hundred and twenty six billion for health, labor, education, and pensions, and the pensions committee. Um, this addresses specifically a universal pre K. Uh, it addresses child care for working families. It addresses tuition free community college. Uh, additional funding for historically black colleges and expansion of Pell Grants for higher education, which is huge. Um, awesome. $37 billion for the um, uh, HSGAC committee, 
uh, which is the committee for... So it, this would electrify uh, federal vehicles. Hmm. Um, and it would also uh, electrify and rehabilitate federal buildings. And it would also include um, improvements to, uh, to cybersecurity as well. Um, 107 billion for the Judiciary Committee, specifically talking about um, funding going towards uh, trying to create lawful, lawful permanent status for qualified immigrants, so pathway mm-hmm. to citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, $20.5 billion for the Indian Affairs Committee, $25 billion for the Small Business Committee, uh, $18 billion for the Veterans Affairs Committee, um, so upright, upgrading veterans facilities, um, and $83 billion for the Commerce Committee. Now, based on all the things that I just talked about, it feels like to me that the one that is significantly more essential is the human infrastructure bill. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the traditional infrastructure is important, but it seems to me like that's icing on the cake at this point. Like one of the arguments that Bernie Sanders made that I thought was, I thought makes this point better than anyone else is Yes, we want to build bridges, but we don't want to build bridges just so people can live under them. So given the fact that we've got a good bill that is supported by Republicans and a a much better bill and a much more critical bill, which is supported by Democrats, you'd think that we could get everybody on board. You'd think that we can meet our 50 vote majority or, you know, 50 vote requirement in the Senate plus Kamala Harris to break the tie. Um, But as we have talked about before and alluded to at the top of this segment, there are a couple really important holdouts uh, that put this uh, human infrastructure, this like this bill that invests significantly in making America a much better place for the future and today uh, in jeopardy. And, like specifically we're talking about Joe Manchin and we should also reserve at least a little time to talk about Kirsten Cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. Joe fucking Manchin <laughs> and Kirsten yeah. fucking Cinema. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. And basically Joe Manchin who has been flopping all over this issue. Like like he he threw out original numbers uh you know when he was originally saying that it shouldn't be like a $6 trillion bill, he was like three or four, that would be good. And now he's saying that, well, we're going to have to bring this down to like a $1.2 trillion bill at most. And he's, he's expressed a bunch of concerns about a lot of like the key kind of social safety net components of the bill, the stuff that make it a much more progressive and, you know, a a bill and like a huge investment in uh, like the social safety net and like our future. So, for example, one of the things that he's against that make it a really great bill is there's a provision in it um, that would create an 80% clean electricity standard. What the fuck, dude? The planet (laughs) is fucking dying. And what I hate about this, so so right now, he's been criticizing... Uh, progressives for basically saying, hey, look, if you if, if we don't pass this human infrastructure bill, the the progressives in the House are going to tank mm-hmm. the the bipartisan bill and they're going to do it with a smile on their face. 
All right. And he's basically saying, first off, he's accusing um, progressives like Bernie Sanders and like AOC of holding the bill hostage, which I would just like to point out the fact that this was always going to be the strategy. This was Nancy Pelosi's strategy. It was announced in like April. Yeah. (laughs) Nancy Pelosi specifically said that she would not even have a vote for the bipartisan bill until the partisan bill got passed. This was always yeah. the plan, all right? Yes. This is one of those rare instances in which Nancy Pelosi is with Bernie and not with Joe Manchin. So the only person that is holding this shit hostage, well, I guess I should say the two people that are holding this hostage is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. So accusing Bernie of doing that is just so intellectually dishonest. And what they're saying is go ahead and pass the the bipartisan infrastructure now, and then we'll talk about the partisan one later. All right. But for now we want to do a pause on the partisan one. Now, the reason why he wants to do a pause on the partisan one is because he knows that West Virginia and West Virginia, their infrastructure is fucking crumbling. He needs this. All right. This Mm -hmm. is one of those rare instances in which he really, really needs this bill to actually pass. All right. Yeah. 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 So he knows that if the, the the partisan one gets held up and if they go ahead and pass the bipartisan one, the bipartisan one, all of the leverage from progressives just goes away and he doesn't want yeah. them to have any have any leverage. That is his fucking plan. Now, I just want to read something that he said that I think is fucking hilarious and that I just want to call him out for because there's such a glaring there's such a glaring um, lack of awareness in this. So he says, quote, and this is specifically to Bernie, the idea of the, you know, speaking out against the whole holding the bill hostage. So he said, quote, if you don't need bridges or roads fixed in your state, I do in West Virginia. I got all the problems that we have addressed in this bipartisan bill. That's the one that has the emergency. Mm. I'd just like to read you some facts about West Virginia in terms of their rankings. All right. West Virginia is 47th in healthcare. The human infrastructure bill would expand Medicaid, all right? And that's out of uh, 50 states, right? That's out of 50 states. (laughs) 47 out of 50 fucking states. It would expand Medicare. It would expand the Affordable Care Act. Subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. West Virginia is ranked 45 in education. This would expand Pell Grants. It would make community college tuition-free. It would invest in universal pre-K. They're 49th in terms of their economy, all right? And that's things like employment. That's things like growth. This would invest in that. Yeah. All right? And then, you know, as... And it seems like the only one that he happens to know is the fact that West Virginia is also number 50 out of 50 in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. 50 out of 50 in infrastructure. Yeah. So, yes, you do need the infrastructure bill absolutely but you really need the human infrastructure bill yeah and pretending that that that's the optional one is just fucking out of touch i know especially now especially like he's saying we need a strategic pause for like you know to like you know retain some fiscal budget for more COVID investment and like to 
you know, to see where like this economy settles and things like that. It's like, well, if we need to invest in our economy, let's do it fucking now. Let's do it with this. <laughs> you know, like if 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 this is a an emergency just as much as, you know, the crumbling infrastructure in West Virginia. But but that's the thing. Like it's not just it's it's I'm glad we, I'm glad we're hitting on this like total movement of the goalpost, right? Because it's like it was always the plan to bring these bills together. It's been the plan for months. It's been it's been like the whole idea um, and the whole strategy about this. Um, and now he's using a classic, a classic ploy uh, in like public messaging to try to pretend like we should like to basically try to uh, uh, wrest that leverage that you were talking about from progressives. And the ploy is that, well, it's just not ready. We just haven't, we've just rushed this. He said specifically, quote, I'm just saying that we should be looking at everything and we're not. We don't need to rush into this and get it done within one week because there's some deadline we're missing or something's going, or something's going to fall through the cracks. So he's saying, Yes, bridges, emergency. No, helping like the 40% of Americans that can't pay for, you know, that can't cover a $400 expense. That's not an emergency. And, you know, government is moving too fast and we're going to make mistakes if we move too fast. Dude, this bill has been in development in some form or another since like 2019. Like since Biden was forming his agenda with that like group of progressives and, and moderate Democrats, before he got elected, they were like working on this type of bill and this type of legislation. Yeah. This is not like some brand new thing. It's been in the works for months, you know, like even in its current form, it's been in development for months. It is not being rushed. You're just trying to pretend that it is so that you can say, no, we're, we should hold out for something even better but but for now we should pass this other thing that's going to pull the rug right out from under the progressive agenda yeah so i yeah huge credit to justice democrats huge credit to to bernie sanders for staying strong on this they better fucking stay strong on this yeah and you know what credit to nancy pelosi if she continue if, if she continues what she's doing if she actually if she does continue to say no vote un unless you uh, pass that uh, that that partisan bill. If she continues to do that, then I, I will say credit to her. Like, and yeah, we'll hell, see. I'll, I'll <laughs> say credit to Biden as well. If this get if if Absolutely. a not too watered down version of this does get passed, yeah. Like, I look to be realistic. I think that there's a good chance if it does get passed, it's gonna be watered down. Mm -hmm. you know i just i think there's probably no way of avoiding that um yeah. i don't i don't know where i would place like the acceptable level of watered downness mm -hmm. um i would say maybe like 2.5 or 2 trillion something like mm -hmm. that uh if it's less than that then god i know i'm gonna be so fucking pissed and the thing is another strategy that he's using is sort of a like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth when it comes to how you're going to pay for this. Yes. So, so he's saying, you know, I don't want to pay for, I don't want to sign anything into law. That's going to drastically increase the deficit. 
So one of the proposals that Biden has in this particular bill is to raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Now, when I first heard that number, I was fuming Mm -hmm. because... Because you hate corporate taxes. Yep, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's lower than what it was before Trump lowered it in 2017, which, by Mm -hmm. the way, Joe Manchin voted against. So I was really pissed off that Biden was asking for only only 28% in terms of corporate tax rates, that he wasn't trying to put it all the way back up to 35%. So I was so pissed off at that. And then here comes Joe Manchin saying, 28's too high. I won't go higher than 25. So this is, this is what he's doing. All right? He's refusing to raise taxes on the rich because they fund his campaign. And he, he openly coordinates with donors. He openly talks to donors, you know, and, and goes to fundraisers with major donors. And he's proud of it. He doesn't even pretend that he's not corrupt. He openly does that. And then he comes in and he says, well, we, uh, well, uh, I'm not going to pass anything that we can't pay for it. So then Democrats are like, okay, here's how we pay for it. He's like, no, I don't want to raise taxes on the people funding my campaign because he's a corrupt motherfucker. So here's what needs to happen. All right. And this is a point that I've made before. And this point has also been made by Kyle Kalinske as well. Um, what Joe Biden needs to do, if he's really serious about this bill, you know, if he's really serious about this bill, he needs to call Joe Manchin into his office and basically like, you know, offer him some things, offer him some nice things. Be like, hey, yeah. hey, Joe, you want to do a photo op with me? We'll do a photo op. You know, you want me to campaign for you in West Virginia? Done. You want me to put in some extra things? You know, you want me to fight fight for some some extra things for West Virginia? Some extra, you know, some extra infrastructure spending, maybe mm-hmm. some um maybe maybe a military base or two in West Virginia? Done. Whatever you need if you vote for this bill. And if you don't vote for this bill, I will fuck your career. I will make sure that you get primaried and I will make sure that you lose that primary. And yeah, that probably means you're going to get replaced with a Republican. I don't care. I will, I will destroy your career if you do not do this. And the argument that I've made in the past is the fact that West Virginia is an unreliable seat to begin with. All right. So if we lose West Virginia, there are other States that we can look at. There are other States that we can focus on. It's an unreliable seat, and it's an unreliable vote. So why would we be spending so much time trying to make him happy? Mm-hmm. Doesn't yeah. Make why any would sense. we? Why would we be giving up so many priorities that we could, that would benefit so many people for a, a really long period of time just for a couple votes right now, or like, or like his unreliable seat in the future? Yeah. Like, is like if I think about it from an economic perspective, it's like, it's basically saying that. You know, you think about the expected value of Joe Manchin's contribution. And right now, because he contributes very little uh, t- in terms of, like, actually passing legislation because he refuses to sign on to progressive tasks, and because it's unlikely that he'll be, you know, remain in his seat for a very long time, you know, the value of him right now is very low, but the value of his vote to this spending bill is very high. Yeah. So, like... I yeah, I would I would I would totally take that. I would absolutely say 
you know, even if it was set up in such a way that was like, literally, if you make this vote, you will never vote on another piece of legislation again. It'll go to Republican. I'd be like, yep, no problem. <laughs> I would take that. Absolutely. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because um, tell the world that we finally got it all right. Mm. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I will become yours, and you will become mine. Mm. I choose you. Wow. That's nice. I mean, I feel like I feel like if we finally got it all right, that would be a good actually. That would be a good actually. <laughs> uh, we but really, we're here right. to yeah. no, we we're not, but we can we if can. we continue to work towards that by we trying to make the world a better place. Exactly. That's that's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. So, Mike, uh, what is our tip for good this week? Well, our tip for good this week is uh, quit freaking the fuck out about AOC at the Met Gala. <laughs> <laughs> so. This is this is an interesting one because I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of leftists that I respect that like, you know, I mean, of course, you have like Jimmy Dore over here being a fucking idiot. He never got over the fact that AOC didn't go along with his stupid fucking like um, uh, force the vote on Medicare for all, which wasn't going to work and was going to uh, just leave. It, it, it would just be a symbolic victory. Um, and he just never got over his bruised fucking ego. Um, but you also have some other commentators that I've seen that I actually do like and respect, you know, like, uh, like Sam Cedar, Kyle Kalinske, who have, who've actually been very critical of it. And I would actually say that the one perspective that I haven't seen that I actually think is really obvious is that this wasn't just like political theater. She was trolling. She <laughs> was, she was clearly trolling. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how nobody else can see that. All right. It wasn't that she was trying to be comfortable with the elites or whatever. She was trolling. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, like <laughs> that seems she was obvious comfortable to with me. Gen Z, if anything else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Cause like, like people have pointed out that like, you know, she's going to this gala where, you know, it costs, what $30,000 a ticket and like she's wearing this designer dress and they're like well like how can you say you're a champion for the poor and like wear this tax the rich dress when you know isn't it hypocrisy to to even attend while like trying to push for that agenda and it's like well yeah that's why it was a joke that's why she didn't pay for her ticket or her dress (laughs) yeah it was a troll i mean that's like saying uh you know when 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 sasha baron cohen um crashed a mike pence rally dressed as dressed as donald trump that's like saying why would you go to a mike pence rally if you don't support mike pence (laughs) it's like he was trolling he was trolling he was clearly trolling so so look i i just i just don't see why people are people are, are not seeing that I don't understand why people are not like saying what I think is the obvious thing. Now, a lot of what a lot of people are focusing on is like um, a lot of people are focusing on the optics. Like a lot of leftist mm-hmm. commentators are focusing on the optics. 
yeah, like it's tone deaf to go and yeah. And, so you know. what I would argue is okay, but if you're if you're a commentator and you know for a fact you're you're an honest commentator, you know for a fact that she does support taxing the rich, and you agree with taxing the rich, and a majority of mm-hmm. Americans agree with taxing the rich, and you know, and I would you know, presumably a majority of Americans, if they like, if the fact that she was trolling wasn't lost on them, they'd probably think it was funny. Like, look, I'm not going to say, oh, look at her. She's this big, great hero because she wore this dress. And, you know, <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying she's a hero for doing that. I'm saying it's funny. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not gushing it's, over it. It's, it was just it's not funny. a win. It's not it's a like, win. It doesn't mean anything. It's yeah. just a joke. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, it's a joke that then she can. And now she can go into Congress and, you know, fight for the uh, the human infrastructure bill that actually does tax the rich. Mm-hmm. And as long as she's doing that, that's what's most important. So I don't understand why leftist commentators who agree with that policy, who agree mm-hmm. with the policy that she's fighting for, that she's talking about, I don't understand why they're not defending that. Yeah. Like, we, yeah, know, setting the conversation up yeah. so that it's not tone deaf. You, know, you don't have about. to. You don't have to gush over it. <laughs> yeah. But like, you can just fucking laugh at it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's also, not that hard. I, the first thing that struck me also is like. If you think that it's hypocrisy to wear a tax the rich dress and attend a gala that costs thirty thousand dollars to attend, you aren't properly conceptualizing how much money the rich that we're talking about have. Yeah. Like thirty thousand dollars is a normal dinner to the billionaires that we're talking that that like the yeah. proposals that are currently on the table are talking about like yeah. taxing. Like it's just it's just not even a thing for the level of ultra wealthy that we're targeting. Yeah. So it's like, it's, 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 I think, I think that's a point that's really lost on people is just how yeah. much wealth rich is where $30,000 is not a lot of money at yeah. all. And as yeah. a result, like why even, why even focus on it? Yeah. Like, I mean, to be clear, I do want to tax, I want to tax millionaires as well. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, the the people that we really should be that that I want to tax even more than that the people that mm-hmm. um really need to be taxed more are of course the billionaires I mean let's not forget the difference between a billion dollars and a million dollars if I gave you a dollar every second it would take you eleven days to have a million dollars it would take you forty years to have a billion dollars that's a massive that's a massive difference so yeah. a lot of the people that are at the that are at the Met Gala I mean yes I'm sure that you do have plenty of of billionaires, but a lot of them are millionaires. Now tax them. Yes. Tax them. Sure. But yeah, like the people, the, the, the people that you should be focusing the most on are those billionaires. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's important to, to say that as like part of the argument, you know, like yeah. if we're going to try to actually get to a point where we're taxing billionaires, we need to stop conceptualizing of people that are moderately wealthy on a relative basis as the wealthy, because they're the ones that are like funding campaigns to like try to get people not to tax them. And it's like, dude, no one gives a fuck about you. Like (laughs) you only have a million dollars. Wait until you have like the difference between that as 11 days and 40 years. Like, (laughs) I mean, hell even, uh, even Bernie's wealth tax doesn't kick in until I I think it was like 30, 30 million in net worth. Yeah. I think that was like 30 million. It's like, yeah, exactly. Have thirty times your wealth, dude, and then we'll and then we'll talk. So, anyway, uh, yeah. So just it's not important, and to the degree that it is important, it's just fucking funny. 
So yeah. let's focus on taxing the rich and forget about fucking Met Gala. And that's tips for good. So for our second segment, we are talking a little bit more about Biden's soft vaccine mandate. So to be clear, Biden has not mandated vaccines, has not forced every American or every eligible American to get a vaccine. That's not what has happened. Um, What he has done is made an announcement, which is not actually even an executive order yet, um, that that the Department of Labor will be requiring businesses with more than 100 employees um, to have their, to require their employees to be immunized or face weekly, a weekly testing requirement. So this will affect about 80 million American workers, um, according to the White House estimate. Um, And it also required, he's also announced that he'll be requiring businesses to pay for paid time off to send their employees to get vaccinated. Um, as part of this, he also announced that there would be a requirement for healthcare facilities that accept Medicare and Medicaid funding uh, to require their vaccinate their employees to be vaccinated, um, which should uh, which should affect about fifty thousand healthcare providing locations. Um, and then he did sign an executive order, which is which will definitely go into effect and we have some more details on because it's actually an executive order which requires federal employees to be vaccinated with no exemption for being regularly tested so previously there was a vaccination requirement but if you got tested once a week you didn't have to get vaccinated this kind of gets rid of that once week testing uh exemption um and so this will affect basically uh all federal programs federal employees and federal contractors um and to all of that, uh, with only a little bit of libertarian, you know, with only a little bit of hesitation, do I say huzzah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've always said, and I, I think we actually said this earlier in the pod already, um, when it comes to government involvement as a, mm-hmm. as a good little civil libertarian, uh, my, immediate <laughs> rea- my immediate question is always, all right, do the actions of this person put other people in physical harm's way or at physical risk? If the yep. answer is yes, then government involvement. If the answer yep. is no, then no government involvement. And yeah. furthermore, I mean, if there is any way in which you can prevent government involvement or even limit government mm-hmm. involvement while still yeah. achieving the desired response, then do it. Yeah, the least restrictive means. Exactly. The least restrictive means. So I would say that in a perfect world, we wouldn't even need a soft mandate. People would just, people uh, would not be flooded with disinformation about the vaccine. And enough people will get, will have gotten the vaccine to have created herd immunity and the pandemic would be over. All right. That's what it would be in a perfect world. And the government wouldn't have to mandate anything. Mm-hmm. That would be a beautiful world, all right? Because yep. I, I don't want the government to be involved in stuff like that. I don't mm-hmm. like. I don't like it when the government restricts freedom in any way. Yeah. But the problem is, the government should step in to prevent your freedom from being restricted from another person. 
And yeah. that is what this is all about. So in terms of just the morality of this, in ter terms of just the ideological argument for this, I 100% support this. And I, and, and, I know, yeah. and, I, and I would also say, like, I was surprised that Joe did this, that Joe Biden did yeah, this. Yeah, me too. Me too. Like, you know, this is the this is one of those things where I'm just like, like, like I, I mean, I, I believe I've made pretty clear on this pod several times that I do have some deep biases against Joe Biden, and I, I love to find every little bad thing that he does and talk about it. But mm -hmm. this is good. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, like, to your point, he he gave it a good old college try to convince people to get the vaccine. He pretty much did every soft incentive. Like states are states are giving people money, states are entering people into lotteries. Like uh, he's making you know he, his administration is making the vaccine available everywhere. Like they did what they could do, and he even said like quote We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, and your refusal has cost all of us. It was he's like chastising <laughs> non non vaccinated Americans, but like it's true. Like we as we've emphasized so many times, like we have the tool to make this not a problem. And the tool is free, available, safe, approved by the FDA, at least one of the vaccines, and the other two are, you know, emergency use. It's like there's literally no downside, and yet people are still choosing risk and death, and risk and death for others, and, and that's a problem. Yeah. So... One of the things that I want to focus on in this segment is specifically some of the counter arguments people have made. Um, yeah. There's actually one counter argument that I want to start with. And I'm um, the thing I like about this argument. So this isn't, this argument seems to be presented in a, you know, in a reasonable way from someone who wants people to get vaccinated, but just doesn't want them to be forced. So this, this mm -hmm. argument comes from governor Asa Hutch Hutchinson of Arkansas. Um, who made the argument that this plan, quote, uh, disrupts and divides the country. And the argument that he made was that, you know, there, there is precedent for vaccine requirements in schools and all, but it's usually on the state level and not the national level. Now, I want to get back to that point in a second, but one of the arguments that he, that he makes is that increasing vaccination um, should be achieved by... Uh, increasing community engagement and having trusted messengers talk to people about the inoculation. The point that I want to make about that is that Donald Trump encouraged his supporters at a rally to get vaccinated and Donald yeah. Trump got booed for it at his yeah. own rally. If Donald Trump Telling people to get vaccinated, telling his supporters to get vaccinated, you know, the people that, you know, some of which injected themselves with bleach because he said that that could be a potential way to to, to, to solve COVID. Uh, people that overlooked the fact that he, 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 he used a Sharpie to alter a, a weather map, like... People, people that, who think he's like basically as good as a scientist. Exactly. <laughs> or or a deity, honestly. If they are booing him when he asks them to get vaccinated, I'm sorry. Yeah. They've made up their minds. It's time yeah. to it's time to start doing some mandates. All yeah. right. The thing is we've we've done the tested vo the trusted voices. Yeah, we've tried the, it. The trusted voices either get ignored or drowned out by 
or or they refuse to make these arguments, right? Like the trusted voices for the right are all of the news organizations that are supporting skepticism about the vaccine. The trusted voices are people like Tucker Carlson and then and people even to the further right of his program. Like those are the trusted voices and you can't mandate their advocacy for the vaccine, but you know what you can do? Mandate the vaccine. Yeah. So the one place in which there might actually be a legal argument um, is the question about federal versus state. So it is true that traditionally when there have been vaccine mandates, particularly in schools, uh, that has actually been done through the states. And there's actually there's this interview on NPR um, from uh, uh, of uh, Lawrence Guston, uh, who is a professor of global health law at George State University. And he talked about how, yes, there is a very long history of um, of Supreme Courts uh, upholding vaccine mandates. But in the past, the the way it's been upheld has specifically been on a state level. So one of the famous mm-hmm. cases, uh, was the uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts case, um, which was in 1905. So he, so uh, Professor Guston actually argues that a blanket mandate probably would have been unconstitutional. However, mm-hmm. this is not necessarily a blanket mandate. Um, it actually it focuses on on businesses and it also gives them a choice, which is what why we use the term soft mandate instead of full mandate. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, because it focuses on business, that could also fall under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Yep. The fact yep. that the federal government is allowed to regulate interstate commerce. Yeah. Yeah. And they could like and through the executive agencies uh, like the Department of Transportation or the uh, or the Department of Labor, like they can regulate things that happen on, uh, you know, th- like worker safety in the case of the Department of Labor, which is the vehicle through which yeah. they would they would mandate businesses require vaccines of their employees or they could, or, or through the department of, um, you know, department of transportation, they could mandate vaccines to, for interstate travel and things like that. Like, like, yeah, there may be, there may be cases where like, you know, a mandate could be legally challenged, but you can get like 95% of the way there without any grounds for challenge. Yeah. And I would also like to point something else out. Let's look at the actual wording of that Supreme Court case that we talked about, the Jacobson I was case. hoping you would bring this up because it's one of those rare cases where law aligns with principle so well. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So the main argument from people that are actually trying to make an honest effort, like, and, and look, yeah. I, I, will, I will say that people that make the argument that they don't know if this is something that could happen on a federal level. Um, maybe it could happen in a state level, but you know, in, a, in terms of Supreme of, of uh, court precedent, um, the problem is the question of feather, federal level. I think that some people that are making that argument are actually trying to make an honest effort, but let's look at the mm-hmm. wording of that court case. So at the time, uh, justice, uh, John Marshall, uh, Harlan wrote quote, the Liberty secured by the constitution does not implore an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly free from restraint on any other basis, organized society could not exist with safety to its members. 
Mm-hmm. He also in he also uh, um, noted that uh, the social compact of the whole people covenants with each civilian and each civilian with the whole people that all should be governed by certain laws for the common good. So yeah. translation, what he's saying is basically what we have said a bunch of times, yeah. which is, you know, you're free to swing your fist all over the place if you want to, but that freedom stops the moment that it hits me in the face. Yeah, exactly. And note like this case is from being from 1905. It is fucking on point. Yeah, <laughs> this was specifically about you know vaccine mandate in Massachusetts, and Jacobson's argument was that forced vaccination deprived him of his constitutional right to bod- to autonomous decisions about his own body. Literally, the argument that conservatives are making about freedom of bodily autonomy. Note the one that they ignore when it comes to abortion, but we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> but but note that like. The the opinion of Justice Harlan and the libertarian argument that we have put forward is 100% compatible with that perspective. It is just that you do not have the right to put other people in harm's way in the name of your own bodily autonomy. Yeah. You don't get to, yeah, with your, like, yeah, you don't get to spin around with scissors or you you do until you put someone else in danger. <laughs> yeah. Note also that like in the Jacobson case, um, there the, you know there was an exception for medical exemptions mm, where yes. forcing someone forcing someone to get a vaccine that was harmful to the person's health would not be uh, constitutionally protected. Yeah. And so it's literally what we've been saying is is not only it, the argument in this case, just so wholly aligns with the law. It's that not only is it really important to have, you know, uh, in, especially in this case, like not only is it legal to have a mandate, it's it's legal specifically if you have exemptions for people that shouldn't get the vaccine for a medical reason. And it's critical for those people as well, right? It's critical to protect those people um, uh, who you know don't have any choice but not to get the vaccine, and so yeah. the rest of us should. Yeah, which I don't know the exact percentage of that. I, I have actually uh, a friend of mine um, mentioned that that specific population is actually fairly small in the case of the coronavirus because you do have the options with the traditional vaccine with the Johnson yeah. and Johnson and the RNA vaccine. Sure. Um, so that yeah, number like, could be relatively low, um, but yeah. I, I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that there are people. Yeah, and other and unlike a lot of other vaccines, it doesn't use an adjuvant, which is something that your dad described when talking about vaccines. Generally, is like some vaccines they inject you with either a dead or live or you know weakened live form of the virus, and to make your body have a strong immune response, they include an adjuvant, something to make your body's alarm bells go off. These don't have that. Yeah, and so like there's there's not like a there's not like a you know, a lot of other material to like have a adverse allergic reaction or something too. Like yeah. these vaccines are particularly safe. Yeah. You know, originally when I, when I talked to Michael about uh, potentially doing this segment, my initial thought was 
let's pull up a bunch of really stupid arguments that Republicans have made and laugh at them. <laughs> and there's no shortage of that. No. Oh, my there's God. There's absolutely so many. <laughs> no shortage of that. Um, like Ben Shapiro uh, did a segment in which he basically straight up said that this was the most authoritarian thing that a president has done in his lifetime, which um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm getting a call. It's um, it's the Patriot Act. Uh, it's the war on drugs. It's, um, calling in, uh, calling in federal troops and a a secret police to quell protests. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll hold. Uh, they want to talk to you, Benny. Yeah. (laughs) That you've got an education coming from them. Yeah. But the thing is like, you know, we could spend some time talking about the stupid arguments and laughing at them. But the thing is like, this is such a slam dunk. Yeah. You know, there aren't really very good arguments against it. Now, I will admit, I'll be the first to admit, it feels a little icky. It feels weird. Yeah. Right? Like, mandates feel weird. There's a, but like, a one in 500 Americans has died from COVID. We're currently yeah. experiencing another surge with more than half of the population fully vaccinated. Like, this is not just a fun you know, like authoritarian, you know, fascist Joe Biden is out there having a great time in prosing, you know, infringing on your rights. It's like, this is a medical emergency. Um, yeah. So look, it, it sucks that it had to come to this, but we need to end this pandemic and we need to protect each other. So kudos to Biden. Yeah. And it's actually pretty popular. I mean, it's not super popular, but like, uh, you know, a week after the announcement, Politico and Morning Consult put out a poll, um, found that 58% of people support requiring employers with more than 100 employees uh, to mandate vaccines. Um, 57% uh, support requiring federal workers and contractors to be vaccinated. uh, And 60% support requiring healthcare workers to be vaccinated. Um, so, yeah. you know, broadly, generally popular. My my worry is actually the point, is a little bit the point that Kyle Chaska brought up when he was on our show last, especially with yeah, respect to the, uh, the healthcare workers thing, is the potential for this mandate to, um, ha- you know, compromise some of our, like, critical services. Um, yeah. So, like, he pointed out that, you know, the medical system probably couldn't run if every nurse or doctor who didn't want to get this vaccine quit instead of getting the vaccine. Or was fired. Um, or was fired. Yeah, exactly. And about, you know, about three quarters of U.S. workers have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. But of those um, that haven't gotten vaccinated, seven in 10 say that they would probably quit if their employer required them to get the shot. So that's like, that's, yeah. you know, a huge well, proportion of, well, of unvaccinated still, workers. I mean, the details are still kind of being worked out. Um, you know, Paul yeah. and I talked about last week about like, uh, would it be sort of a, you ha- the company itself has to pick whether it's going mm-hmm. to require vaccines or require weekly tests for people that aren't vaccinated, mm-hmm. or if it's going to be like individual em- employees can, yeah. can figure that out. I, I, it doesn't look like that's completely clear at this point, but if that mm-hmm. is the case, then I mean, in the meantime, like annoy the shit out of them with weekly tests. Like they can decide sure. not to get vaccinated and 
they can continue to get weekly tests. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, and the other thing is, the other kind of counter argument I was thinking about was like, it's one thing if it's one employer, which is actually a huge strength actually of this of Biden's proposal. It's one thing if it's one employer, right? If you've got one large employer who is mandating vaccines, your employees have a lot of options about where to go where That's they good point. don't yeah. face the same requirement. But if every if you're if all of a sudden in order not to be tested weekly or have a vaccine requirement, you've got to work somewhere with under 100 employees, all of a sudden that calculation that calculus is very different. And so I wonder what the seven in 10 who would quit would now say if like their options were limited to really small companies, if they didn't want yeah. to be required to get a vaccine. All right. And now it's time for our favorite segment. Ass bag, bag of, of the, the week. week. What? Wait, Michael, we just said ass bag. Ass bag. What the fuck is an ass bag? Well, Michael, <laughs> <laughs> for the first time ever, we have a hybrid segment. We wow. have a D-bag award to give out for a completely self-defeating idiotic argument. And we have an asshat award to give out mm. because this whole thing is just so asshatty. And I cannot mm. think of a more deserving recipient for our very first ass bag reward than than our current one so who is who is our honorary recipient of our very first ass bag award on the perspectrum i'll give you two guesses <laughs> it's gonna be either marjorie taylor space lasers green or the ass bag of uh the our our most our most frequent ass hat of the week tucker carlson yeah. <laughs> so so it is in fact Tucker Carlson. He had the to ask that keeps the on hatting. bag. Yeah, and bagging. He just keeps bagging that ass. Uh, you can't say that on the podcast. <laughs> Should I cut that? <laughs> Who knows? You decide. You're the master. <laughs> okay. Um so so Tucker Carlson was in an interview uh with uh YouTube, you know, host Dave Rubin. And Dave Rubin was asking him this question, like, how can these people who lie all the time, like apparently Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon, um, live with themselves? He, re he referred to them as clown people. And he, and he like, you know, how can these people that lie, you know, yeah. you know, live with yeah. themselves? To be clear, Dave Rubin is not talking about Tucker Carlson in this case. No, 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 no. He was asking Tucker Carlson this question. Uh, so to imply that Tucker Carlson was an author authority on the truth and someone that <laughs> would be good to ask about the uh, uh, these people God, that that Dave, are such prolific Dave, liars. Uh, can we just can we just take a minute to appreciate how much of a <laughs> fucking idiot Dave Rubin is? Like, dude, he really is. <laughs> like, he's another one of those cases that like there was a time when Dave Rubin was like on the verge of not being like oh, the worst fucking person. And he's just such a fucking idiot now. Like there was a time mm. when he would have like actual thoughtful people on his show. And now he's like asking Tucker Carlson how CNN hosts live with themselves because they lie all the fucking time. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the idiot at one point actually said that, you know, that 1984 needed a Donald Trump. Like the book 1984, like if there was a Donald Trump there, then, you know, then it would have fixed everything. 
the Are guy that literally me? told his supporters what you're seeing and what's hap- what you're hearing is not what's happening. He said that he would be actually he would actually help the situation in 19. There is there is a Donald Trump. His name is Big Brother. Yeah. <laughs> like what the fuck? <laughs> Ridiculous. Anyway, so oh side, God. you know, sideburn, Dave Rubin, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so what, Tucker, what did Carlson, Tucker Carlson respond? In response, he said, I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie. If I'm really cornered or something, I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I just don't, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) He admitted it. Like, yeah. He admitted it. He's literally just asked a question. How can people who lie live with themselves? And he goes, well, I mean, I lie all the time. <laughs> I'm, not a ha- I'm not a fan. I'm not a yeah, fan He doesn't enjoy lying. doing it, to be, to be fair to him. He doesn't I wish I didn't have to. And it's yeah. only in moments yeah, yeah, yeah. of weakness, you know, when, he, when he's cornered. Moral high ground. Yeah. Yeah, when he's cornered. So, like, yep. if, somebody, if somebody has beaten him in an argument, I guess, I guess, I guess this is what it means. If someone has beaten him with, yeah. in an argument or if someone brings up information that he was too dumb to know... Um, you know, he, he, he just lies because, you know, admitting that you might be wrong about something would be just too intellectually honest for an ass bag like yeah. Carlson. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But like he doesn't actually like having doing productive it. He discourse. doesn't like doing it. No. And the thing is, he goes on to criticize CNN and, and like the CNN hosts, um, not because they lie. He goes on to criticize them because they lie on behalf of the system. So he goes on to say, like, um, but to systemically lie like that without asking yourself, why am I doing this? So if these people ask themselves, why am I doing this? And they say, well, I want to protect the system because I really believe in the system. Lying to defend Jeff Bezos, treating Bill Gates like some sort of moral leader. Like, he's literally, he's literally not saying lying is bad. He's saying you should reflect on what you lie about so that you can lie about the right things and the right things are not Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. Which I would just like to point out, in terms of rhetoric, sometimes Tucker Carlson will th- say things critical of Jeff Bezos or or uh, Bill Gates, like maybe on cultural mm-hmm. issues every now and then. But let's not forget, yeah. he was for the tax cut under Trump. He was against... Yeah. He he was against the uh, the stimulus checks when Biden passed them, and he is currently against the infrastructure, the human infrastructure bill that would raise taxes on the rich. So, in terms of what really matters, in terms of economics, in terms of actually changing the system that keeps billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates as rich as they are, he is the one who is actively actively lying in order to preserve it. All right. And the funniest part of this, the funniest part of this, he said, people who punch down are the worst. They should have no power whatsoever. In my opinion, (laughs) this is the same guy who says that immigrants make the country dirty, who says that, Immigrants coming into who, who fear mongered about refugees from Afghanistan, who, by the way, are only refugees because we fucked up their country so bad that they're coming here and they might show up in your neighborhood. If that's not punching down, I don't know what the fuck is. 
Seriously, I agree with you. People who punch down are the worst. You are the worst, and you should have no power whatsoever. You fucking yeah. asshat, and you fucking Dershowitz bag. Yeah. I, Every single thing he 100%. says here could easily be applied to him. <laughs> exactly. And like, I, yes, people that lie shouldn't be on TV. That includes you, you fucker. People that punch <laughs> down should not have power. That includes you, you assbag. <laughs> so a deep and hearty congratulations to Tucker Carlson for being our very first assbag ass of the week. Okay. All right. So for our last segment, we're talking about a topic that I wish no one ever had to talk about anymore. Yeah. Abortion. Yeah. It's like, it's like, why do we even have to fucking argue about this? Like, why is this even a topic that people are legislating about? I don't get it. But we have to talk about it because uh, Texas has recently uh, enacted and begun enforcing the nation's most restrictive abortion law. It bans abortions after six weeks from conception. Uh, At that point, the cluster of cells in a pregnant person's body is about the size of a grain of rice. At, At six weeks, an embryo at six weeks gestation is only about four weeks old because the pregnancy clock starts at the person's last menstrual cycle. And that person, um, most people don't even realize that they are pregnant until they have missed uh, their next menstrual cycle. So that's that's two weeks after conception. So really they've got almost no time to to know that they're pregnant in order uh, to not have to carry that pregnancy to term in Texas. Patients will go into to get ultrasounds to, you know, have an abortion thinking that they're under 6 weeks and literally at the office they'll learn that they're in fact further along because it is at that point it is like totally not obvious at all. You listener could be pregnant right now <laughs> and yeah. have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I could be pregnant right now. You know, it, yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, and and I I want to make one thing absolutely clear. Banning abortions does not prevent abortions. It prevents safe abortions. All right? 100%. It prevents safe abortions. If you actually care about reducing the number of abortions and if you're intellectually honest and it's not just about controlling women's bodies and look i know people who are against abortion and when they tell me that it's not about for them it's not about controlling women's bodies it's because they genuinely believe that life begins at conception and they want to prevent abortions from happening there's some people that i know that i believe them i believe them when they say that yeah but the solution is not to ban abortions The solution is to prevent the need for abortions in the first place. If you actually want to reduce the number of abortions, every single conceivable study that has ever been done on this has concluded that the way you do that is through, number one, steady access to contraceptives. Number two, in-depth sex education at high school age. In fact, when California banned abstinence-only education, the number of unwanted pregnancies 
reduced by 40%. <laughs> All right? So if you actually want to prevent abortions, you want to target the reduction in unwanted pregnancies. And the way you do that is through education. So if the Texas governor was actually serious about fighting against abortions and didn't just want to just didn't just want to regulate women's bodies and if he was being honest and he actually knew his head from his ass then what he would do is he would ban abstinence only education in the state of Texas and yeah. honestly I would even make the argument that you should make contraceptives completely free yeah I mean under a medicare for all system you know, it should be free. But if you're not going to if you're not going to have a Medicare for all system, like if you actually want to prevent abortions, if you are serious about preventing abortions, that's what you should yeah. do. Yeah. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? People are going to be doing coat hanger abortions. People are going to be trying to mix together chemicals. There is this there's this one report that I that I heard a while ago. Um, there was this uh, there's this woman, I believe that she was in. I think it was Alabama. Mm -hmm. where there's only like two abortion clinics in the entire fucking state. And this woman had called this abortion provider and was like, basically, I need an abortion right now. I'll tell you what I have in my pantry. Tell me what I need to use. That oh is the God. type of shit that happens when you prevent access to abortion. All right. You're still killing fetuses and you're also potentially killing the people that carry the fetuses. That is what you're doing. And that is what this is about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, not, maybe not even fetuses, right? Maybe just embryos. Like you could literally not yeah. have a baby. Like, <laughs> not even and, a fetus yet. Yeah, and and we should get into that because I think that's a really important part of the way that the Republicans and the GOP have shifted the Overton window on this issue to a point where, like, they've already won. They've won the argument. They have accepted the mantle of the moral high ground, and I think we should try to reclaim it from them. Um, but so so j that point on the health point is, I think, super critical. The other thing it does is a, an equality point, right? Like, yes, you limit access to safe abortions when you uh, stop abortions in a state. When you stop abortions in a state, you also limit access uh, specifically to the least well-off, the people that can't afford to go to another state, that can't afford to take off work in order to, like, travel the average of 600 miles that women and, and people that are pregnant in Texas are currently attempting to travel to, to have an abortion. Like, you are preventing people that are least able, potentially, to care for these kids uh, to have a good, healthy pregnancy from being able to get an abortion. Um, like, it's, it's crazy. And, and, uh, yeah, people that are pregnant are like going to desperate lengths, going to other states to get abortions at this point. One, one from from the from the DOJ's filing for an emergency uh, injunction to stop the ex, like stop the uh, the enforcement of this law. Um, they they put pulled together some of these examples. One woman one woman piled her kids into a car and drove for fifteen hours to to Kansas to get um, uh, uh, an abortion via medication, not even like, not even like an, an abortion at an early enough stage that it is literally taking uh, some medication. Um, a minor from Galveston was raped by a family member and traveled eight hours to Oklahoma to, to terminate the pregnancy. Another patient made like traveled six hours to out of state 
by herself because she was afraid that if anyone came with her, they would face legal liability under this law. So that's the real, the incredibly insidious thing that this law does that enables it to have survived this long to actually reach enforcement. So what this law does is, so other states have attempted quote heartbeat law where they outlaw abortion at the time of a fetal heartbeat. And to be clear, a fetal heartbeat is not a heartbeat because at six weeks an embryo does not have a heart. They have electrical impulses that are picked up by the ultrasound machine, and the ultrasound machine makes a sound that sounds like a heartbeat. It is not a heartbeat. Um, So just to be clear on that. Other states have attempted to implement these heartbeat laws, and before they're actually enforced, they are deemed unconstitutional because uh, Roe v. Wade has protected the rights of people to get abortions up to, I think, you know, the third trimester, 22 plus weeks. Um, But what this law does is it creates a private right of action for individuals to sue people in civil court who have aided or abetted uh, someone in having an abortion. And it entitles them, if they successfully complete this lawsuit, to $10,000 in damages. So it is basically saying that literally anyone in Texas has a $10,000 personal injury when anyone else in Texas helps anyone else in Texas get an abortion. It's a fucking bounty system. Exactly. It like, is turning it is turning every single Texas citizen into an abortion vigilante. Yeah. Um and that, to pay that, them to try to to try to to prevent abortions. And the argument that they're using is that because the act like law enforcement can't enforce this because it's only up to regular civilians that it doesn't violate Roe. And you know that that's interesting because I wonder what would happen if California passed a law that made it illegal to buy any handguns or any guns at all. But of course they they specifically made it so that the government couldn't enforce it, but civilians could enforce it. Like a civilian could potentially see somebody with a gun or see a gun shop and sue them, sue them in court, and then potentially get a $10,000 bounty for doing that. I wonder how Republicans would feel about that. I wonder if they'd be screaming out, this is clearly unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that comparison is so important. Like, if this construction of a law were to persist and allowed to persist, there would no longer be a division between the civil and, like, the criminal. Because what this is doing is it is subcontracting out the execution, the enforcement of criminal law to the civil courts, to private citizens in civil court, which would be, which would be the destruction of our legal system. It, that would be catastrophic. Yeah. And so there is no sense in which this construction of law could be allowed to persist. On top of that, there is no way that it should be allowed to persist when it creates, when it violates uh, uh, someone's constitutionally protected rights, which, as I mentioned, the right to an abortion is constitutionally protected. 
So this bill is unconstitutional. There isn't a question about that in, in any serious way. The, the, question, the problem is that it's a new procedural construction, right? So the way you would normally sue, uh, the way you would normally uh, take action, legal action, against a heartbeat law like this is you would uh, file suit, I think an injunction, against the people tasked with enforcing the law, the, the state representatives tasked with enforcing the law, right? And you would bring suit against them, and that has been the path to, uh, to the Supreme Court saying these laws cannot be enforced, right? But in this case, there's no enforcement individual to take suit against, and therefore, it's not, obvi it's not obvious from a procedural perspective how to go about making this law unconstitutional. And that's basically what the Supreme Court, in their 5-4, um, it's not a decision, it's just, it's just they refuse to take up the case. Um, in their 5-4 order, uh, that's what they basically concluded. Basically, they, they don't, they didn't, um, the abortion providers who were the ones filing suit, didn't answer the important standing questions about their ability to bring suit in the first place. Um, so on procedural grounds, they felt like they couldn't uh, take the case. And the thing is, that is exactly what the Texas law was designed to do. It was designed to be a sticky, weird law that they're not really sure how to sue and prevent. Um, and so since, that, since the Supreme Court has has refused to take up this case and therefore basically deferred to the Texas law to continue to stand, which is just how that works, um, this law has now taken effect. And so the DOJ, um, you know, led by Merrick Garland, has filed an emergency request uh, last week to get a federal judge in Austin to block uh, the enforcement of the law. Um, at, at this point, the, that federal district judge uh, gave the state until the 29th to reply to the Justice Department's brief, and then there'll be a hearing on Oct October 1st, which means that this law will be at least in force for over a month before it is enjoined, which is yeah. which has horrible effects. It's And again, this the implications of using something like this in order to get around the law... <laughs> is fucking scary. Yeah, it is. Because if you can just override the Constitution by making it enforced civilly, yeah, like you could have people making laws that say that you can sue a person over a violation of free speech, yeah. over, over, over free speech. You could, fuck it, you could, you, could, you could make it illegal to not be a Christian as long as it's uh, yeah. as as long as long as the people that enforce the law are you know people that sue people who aren't Christians, you could literally make it effectively illegal for women to vote. You could deprive someone of literally any right if this is allowed. Uh, if this like formulation is allowed to persist. Yeah, and this isn't slippery slope fallacy. This is precedent. No. Yeah, if we allow this to stand as a precedent, like you can get around a lot of other parts of the Constitution, and you know that there are plenty of Republicans that would love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
I, I also do, before we end, close out this segment, I want to spend a minute or two on like how the GOP has stolen the abortion conversation. Because like, I think, I think like, you know, at the top of the segment, you were saying like, even if you accepted that, you know, even if your goal is really to prevent abortions, you should take these other actions besides outlawing abortion, which like, you know, is, is a, a great count, like a great place to start, right? Like you are not achieving your goals if that's actually your goal. But the fact that we often do start there, we often start with like, well, abortion's not great, but if we have to have abortion, people should be able to get abortions. But like the reason that's true, the reason we start there is because of how effectively I think like the GOP has mm. shaped this conversation by calling embryos fetuses, by calling fetuses babies, by calling electrical impulses heartbeats. You know, they have, they have given us imagery in our brains that we are killing children which is an obviously morally horrible thing to do. And and so we're asked to balance killing children versus a woman's pregnancy or a person's pregnancy. And it's like, oh my God, how could one possibly balance those things? But like, I, like, I have a question for you, and this might be a like, trick question. Um, how could something have life before it is born? You know, like, how does that even make sense? How could something be an an a, an animal or a person without consciousness? Like these might seem like philosophical questions, but like the idea that life begins at conception is not only factually wrong but inane. Also, it's kind of weird that it's become a religious question because <laughs> last I checked, um, you know, isn't the celebration of Christmas supposed to be the birth of Christ? Not the conception of Christ. I mean, if you really if life think begins life begins at conception, conception <laughs> you know, if you if you really think that life begins at conception or whatever, like, then it seems to me like you should be celebrating the conception of Christ. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know when was that. <laughs> I guess. Like, I guess. <laughs> what May June? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. That's that's really funny. It is weird that it's become a religious question, and and it's weird I mean, it's because, because it's because a power. sign. Well, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Because it's truly a scientific question, right? Like Yeah. Like it's a scientific and and personal question. Should you have the like should you have the right to control what happens to the cells that your body are forming that could at some point in the future become a person? You should have that control. Should you uh be able to like like even the like this is a point like we often set the minimum requirement for these abortion restrictions as at least having exceptions for incest and rape. Yeah. Why? Right? Like, why do we even ask the question of how someone got pregnant before we think that they should ha be justified in having an abortion? Right? Like, why do we even ask why someone would want an abortion before we think that it's okay for them to have an abortion? Like, yeah. even, yeah. I just even the idea that the, that an abortion at like 27 weeks and an abortion at 6 weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks are even comparable as things is silly. The like yeah. I think at this point the argument about abortion has gotten so far off the rails that and it's so far off the rails in favor of the GOP that we are like constantly on on like defending 
ourselves on on relatively weak ground and yeah. roe v wade is all that is protecting us from losing this fight yeah and the only thing protecting roe v wade at this point is a six three conservative majority <laughs> supreme court so uh yeah. in in the words of um of one of my favorite songs that that michael wrote a while back we are so fucked. <laughs> fuck, 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 so, fuck, fuck, so, so, so fucked. Yeah. I'd say that's that seems about right. And now we will end our episode as we usually do with our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Uh, my highlight this week is that I really I really like my new job. Mm. Like I I have I have really enjoyed uh I've really enjoyed being a full-time instructor and I've really enjoyed interacting with my students. I've really enjoyed having uh having an office again, you know? Yeah. Um yeah. Like <laughs> I I I uh, our 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 intro has actually been kind of lying for the last year because like I, I wasn't in my office. I, I couldn't be in my office cause we were, you know, we were doing, uh, mm. uh, we were doing learning from home. So I guess I, I was, I was in my home office. <laughs> um, but like now I, I, I'm back to having an office and it's like, it's a personal office. Like it's not even, you know, a communal office. It's, I have my office. That's, you know, it has, it has my name on it. That's my name. Oh on my it. god! I hope to one day have an office. I hope to one day have a door. <laughs> That's amazing. Having a door is awesome. Um, so anyway, it's I've just really enjoyed my new job. That's great. I'm glad to yeah. hear it. What about you, Mike's? What's uh, What's your highlight? I'm still riding high on my vacation. It was really nice. <laughs> Two weeks trekking around Alaska. We hiked about 57 miles. Uh, hiked up about 15,000 feet. It was really fun. I lived in a van. It was great. Um, yeah, nice. it, was really, it was really cool. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>